The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. There are many ways to tell the complex story of American foreign relations during the Civil War especially those between the United States and Great Britain. Of all the ways one might try to convey this complex and intricate story to a broad audience, perhaps the least likely is through the medium of a romance novel. Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman has attempted this with Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War, and we'll find out how successful she is tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you as usual from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, where we are part of the University of North Carolina system. Welcome today to new system president, Margaret Spellings, who who visited our campus, but not speaking for the president or the system or the university or anyone else. My guest will likewise only speak for herself, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio where last week I mentioned the excitement of fantasizing about purchasing a new computer that would be 
uh, use when I'm broadcasting from home, talking with you. Uh, tonight I'm using the university computer in the office. But over the past week, uh, common sense got the better of me. I don't really need a new computer. I can process words just as well on the old one. And I don't, don't really need to play a flight simulator or other time-wasting game with some fancy new machine. So instead, I went out and ordered some new memory for the old computer. And yesterday, for the first time, joined the ranks of power users. I opened the back of my 2005 uh, uh, computer saw what was inside, which was mostly dust, there were several pounds of it, extracted that with a vacuum cleaner, put in two new sticks of memory, and amazingly, the transformation is amazing. The fan doesn't run all the time, works marvelously. I feel strangely empowered to have done something to my computer other than curse at it and, and try to figure out why it didn't work. So uh, highly recommended the installation of RAM to revitalize an old machine. Speaking of RAMs, uh, the, the RAM is the nickname of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill sports teams, commonly called the Tar Heels. But I've learned this since uh, sending my daughter there, younger daughter there, uh, several years ago. And the uh, Rams, or Tar Heels, are now in the final four of the college basketball tournament and since i'm paying tuition there i feel free to jump on the bandwagon i'm still a loyal pirate uh here at ecu but uh, ecu is not playing any postseason basketball so i'm all agog about the tar heels playing for the national title this coming weekend we'll see how that goes uh as i mentioned a moment ago the president of the whole unc system was here today the newly installed president controversial appointment uh, we'll wait and see how she does. Uh, her appointment, controversial though it was, wasn't the worst thing that's been done uh, to the university system in the last five or ten, last five years. Uh, things keep getting stranger here. North Carolina keeps showing up on national news for all the wrong reasons. I was struck, for example, by the passage of HB2 this past uh, week or so. Don't want to get in the politics of it. Everyone has his or her own opinion on that. But from a historical point of view, the argument that all power resides in Raleigh and states and local cities and localities are powerless to make home rule decisions for themselves was oddly reminiscent to the the uh, the states' rights argument before the Civil War. Southern politicians loudly proclaiming states' rights until the uh, attempts of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, other states to nullify the Fugitive Slave Act. And then suddenly it was, oh, supreme law of the land, federal supremacy. Uh, the, the breathtaking hypocrisy with which people can reject their fundamental theoretical principles in order to prevail on a tangible issue is uh, apparently a fundamental part of human nature, whether 1850s or 2016. But I won't go any further with that thought. Uh, expressing opinions on non-civil war, or even civil war matters, actually, can can be unnecessarily divisive for the civil war talk radio listenership, which I don't want to do. I got an email this past weekend from a listener who said he had been listening for many years, loved the show, but then I said something that he disagreed with on a civil war-related topic, and now he can no longer stand the sound of my voice and will never listen again. I had no idea I was 
treading such a thin line with this particular listener, and I will miss him deeply going forward. But uh, I will add that uh, Voice America this past week has begun sending out for the first time data on show listenership, something I've always been a little curious about. People have asked me. And I can confirm that those of you listening right now on Wednesday night or Wednesday afternoon out west or Wednesday some other time of day, wherever you are in the world, uh, Wednesday, what is today, uh, March 30th, 2016, you're among the elite few. In a given month, there are only a few hundred people who listen to the show live as it comes out uh, webcast. But in the same month, according to the statistics I've been receiving, anywhere from 20,000 to 40,000 listeners uh, choose to tune in at their own leisure, at their convenience, and and, uh, listen on demand as opposed to listening to while Voice America is broadcasting. So it was 40,000, now it's 40,000 minus one because I I expressed an incorrect opinion. Uh, It's a price I I guess I'm going to have to pay. Uh, if I express any things you disagree with, though, do please feel free to let me know. Uh, always happy to hear the opinions of uh, everyone listening. Uh, not that I can persuade you to think differently if, if we don't agree or that I'll change my mind, but uh, it is a big tent in Civil War history, and there are lots of opinions out there worth sharing. We'll hear some more of those opinions in days to come next week, uh, April 2016. On April 6th, our guest will be Sheridan Butch Barringer. He is the author of Fighting for General Lee, Confederate General Rufus Barringer in the North Carolina Cavalry Brigade. Uh, Following that, April 13th, we'll keep up with the cavalry theme as Eric Wittenberg, old friend of the show, will rejoin us to talk about his most recent book on uh, uh, General John Buford, uh, The Devils to Pay, I think is the name of that. Uh, And uh, we'll hear from him. He's got other books in the works, other books recently published. Always good to talk with Eric. So he'll be back on the 13th. On April 20th, our guest will be Peter Carlson, author of Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, a Civil War Odyssey. Uh, This is a book recommended to me by a listener. I just grabbed a copy of it and started looking through it, got on the electronic email system, that's redundant, and arranged uh, to get Mr. Carlson to join us on April 20th and talk about that show. So there's just a few things coming up. There will be more later, but uh, always go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, and you can find out who's going to be on the show and when, what they're going to talk about, find out what else is happening. You can contribute to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, which I actually used to buy a book this week, Uh, and also I suppose I used it to buy memory for the computer. That's tangentially related to the show. Uh, And I bought some diet lime cranberry drink uh, very refreshing that I drink while recording the show so whatever I spend my money on if you send it here think of it as related to the show in some way don't attempt to deduct it on your taxes I have no tax status of of that sort it's just a gift Uh, but it's always welcome you can do that through the uh, impediments of war website and the last reminder May 21 through 29 Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours presents This Hallowed Ground, a week and a few days tour of Civil War sites in Virginia, 
in, up to Pennsylvania and Maryland for Gettysburg and Antietam. A really entertaining trip that I'm pleased to be a part of again this summer. Uh, if you've got the time to do it, look into it. Uh, Google Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours and come join us on this adventure. Well, adventure is the uh, word for this week's reading. Typically, Civil War talk radio does not cover the subject of uh, historical fiction, in part because the, the the people will send me books of historical fiction to read to be on the show. I've, I've and there's something uh, I'm. I'm I've always been taught by my mother, who is probably listening at this moment, if you don't have something nice to say about someone, better to not say anything. So I'll just say there are amateur authors out there who can produce a seven or 800-page self-published novel and send it and uh, want you to read it and then uh, do a show about it. If we made a practice of doing that here, we'd get more of those books, and they're heavy. This was different. Uh, this week, uh, we are breaking that uh, that taboo. It's not the first time we've had uh, Jeff Shara, uh, John Jakes, some uh, children's fiction authors on in the past. This week, our guest is Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman. Uh, she's the author of the book Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War, originally published under the title In the Lion's Den. And it's about, well, we'll find out what it's about. Let's talk with Dr. Hoffman uh, Dr. Hoffman, are you there? Voice. <laughs> well, well, welcome, to be here. welcome to the show. Um, we've corresponded a little bit, and uh, your delightful first name, Elizabeth, lends itself to so many shortened versions. Do you go by Elizabeth, or uh, is it no, acceptable? No, no. The secret is I go by Lisa. And I was never, ever called Elizabeth at all when I was growing up, except by my brothers when they really wanted to get me annoyed. But uh, as I've gotten older, you know, I've, it's, an, it's a name I've come back to. So I do like it, but I usually go by Lisa. Well, as I, I go by Jerry, not, not Gerald, uh, again, except for my mother, uh, if, if when we're reminiscing, uh, then I revert back to the childhood name. But uh, Lisa, it is. Well, Lisa, let me start by establishing the fact that uh, you are not, by trade, a self-published novelist. Uh, you practiced history in, in academia in the past. Could you talk a little bit about your background? Sure, yeah. No, I'm a professional historian, and I write quite a bit. Um, you know, all kinds of nonfiction work, and I've, you know, won a number of prizes. I, you know, my mother's not here to brag on me, so <laughs> I'll have to do it. Um, so I won several prizes for my historical work, and uh, a number of years ago, I just thought that the story of Charles Francis Adams, son of John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams, was so fascinating, and his Civil War you know, his moment and his heroism, really, in the Civil War, that I just, I felt it had to be told in a way that more people would read it. And I was so delighted because as a professional historian, you know, we, we're all in the academic bookstores and on the shelves, and our students have to read us. But when I found Broken Promises in the airport and at Target stores, you know, I've, I felt very excited that, you know, that a book of mine and about something which I think is really important 
would be read by the kinds of folks who normally, you know, won't go to an academic library and pull something like that off the shelf. Well, what what brought you to thinking that this would work in this format? I, I, certainly the story of, of, uh, of Adams as uh, America's minister to, uh, to Great Britain is an important one, but... I guess, where's the moment where where a historian, a, a otherwise sober, uh, thoughtful historian, you know, correcting footnotes, doing everything the way we do, says, I know, a romance novel is the way to tell this. <laughs> How did well, that happen? You know, it's, it's, that's a good question, and I wasn't drinking at the time. Uh, you know, I just think as historians that so often, Jerry... You know that we are. You know we stand our ivory tower, and yet there's so many people out there who are eager to know about history. And uh, you know, one of the saddest things is when someone says, "Oh, you know, I never liked history in school." And I always say to that person, "Well, do you watch TV? You know, have you ever gone to the movies? Did you like it?" Because history is really about these great stories, and in our case, they're they're true ones. So I thought it would be fun to write a novel because there are you know big swaths of people who prefer their history you know, um, in a novel, and there are some people who, you know, can't stand novels and only ever want to read nonfiction, and there's some people who like magazines, and some people write, you know, read newspapers. I had a, an op-ed today in Reuters, uh, the British publication, and because that's yet another way that, that we can reach people. Well, the, uh, I would guess many of uh, people listening to the show tonight, uh, and, and I would include myself among them, uh, read mostly nonfiction. There's a, a certain security you get reading nonfiction, uh, supported by references. You know that what you're getting is is based in evidence and gives you ground mm-hmm. to argue and evaluate. And that that apparatus is missing with fiction. That's sort of the the sixty four dollar question about historical fiction. So what we'll do is leave that hanging for you to ponder and come back and talk about that. We'll take a short break right now, come back in just a moment, talking tonight with Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman, author of Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking this evening with... Dr. Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman. She's the author of Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War. And we talked a bit in the first segment about the the idea of historical fiction as a medium for reaching people who otherwise say they don't like history. But uh, Lisa, the question we left off with, uh, and, and for me the biggest one about historical fiction, is how... How do you answer the the reader who says, I don't have time for that? I, I could read, say, John Jakes, and, and uh, he was a very gracious guest on the show once. Uh, but when I'm done reading that, I really don't know any more about the American Civil War than this imaginative romance tale. Uh, I really don't have any new insight into it. How do I know, having read Broken Promises, that I actually do know something more about foreign relations? Oh, I, I respectfully disagree, my new friend. I, I think that <laughs> historical fiction, it uh, rescues the past in an interesting way. I mean, I'm a teacher, too, of course, and students often, you know, you know, they it all looks like it's dead and gone, right? Because as historians, we're talking about, we know how the story ended. We're always looking backwards, and we start out knowing that the South lost and the North won, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the great advantages of historical fiction is that it really puts us back in that moment where people didn't know how it was going to turn out. Now, the difference between a professional historian writing historical fiction and you know just a romance novelist, as you might mm-hmm. as you might put it, is that you know I'm I'm a you know I'm a prize-winning professional historian. Everything in there, you know, with obviously some uh, uh, the romance and things like that, and which of course at the end I always make it clear who's. Uh, real character who's not a real character because there are some invented characters um, I think of writing historical fiction as a little bit like connecting the dots we do know that a character passed through certain dots but we have to imagine the moments in between um, and I, I love to do it I think it's so much fun uh, for example I at the I don't want to give away the ending my night well, no, but, don't you do know, that. I won't do that but I'll, I will say that a British consul comes on the scene at some moment and I initially made up his name because, you know, I didn't know who the British consul was. But then I just got out. I just got going. I thought, 
I can't do that. I've got to go find the name of the British consul in this particular town at this particular moment in this particular year. And so I did. Now, in a way, it's irrelevant and that certainly you can walk away and know a whole lot more about all, all kinds of phases of the Civil War from this book that you wouldn't otherwise. But you also get that special engagement that I think comes to us when we don't know how it's going to turn out and our hearts are engaged along with our minds. Well, let me say, I don't want to say that I'm opposed to historical fiction, and, and but rather, I, what troubles me is almost what you, you're suggesting, the, the seductiveness of it, uh, to take another uh, a very well-known piece of Civil War fiction that I guess most of our listeners have, have read, uh, Michael Shire's The Killer Angels on the Battle of Gettysburg. It's a great book for introducing students to that moment in history. It sweeps you up. It looks inside the the heads of the major characters who are historical people and is convincing and persuasive. And when it's done, you, because as you've done, he uses real people and real quotes and real situations. You come away saying, I really have a handle on what happened at Gettysburg. Just as I finished reading your book, I have a handle on what Adams was up to, what his son Henry was up to, uh, how their relationships worked with Russell and Gladstone and the, the British leaders but what I don't have are the the any ways to to challenge that. There's without footnotes. I, I I could read another book. Someone else could write another novel on the same topic and just have the characters behave a little differently. And suddenly Adams is the bad guy. Well, Jerry, you know, right now, by the way, I have a new book coming out. It's about Alexander Hamilton. Oh. And when I, uh, yes, the man of the hour and the, the most interesting man, perhaps, of the American Revolution. And when I first started to write this novel, I had what the same opinion that, you know, as I, in my own, in the profession that I sort of came of age with, which was that mm-hmm. Adams was just a, I mean, Adams, pardon me, Hamilton was a jerk. And so I went back and I did all this historical research and I, I researched and I researched and I came away thinking, my goodness. Alexander Hamilton was not what I thought. You know, he really did get a bum rap. And, of course, now he's been turned into rap on Broadway. But (laughs) the point is is that in professional historical nonfiction work, there are different interpretations that people have. And one historian will interpret an event or a person one way, and they'll sort of use, you know, various letters and archival materials to say, you know, this is how I sum up his character. I set some of his character as this or that. And just because the person is putting it in nonfiction and footnoting it doesn't mean there's any less of an interpretation. As you said, we can argue with it, mm-hmm. but we do the same thing um, with nonfiction as well as with historical fiction. You can go back and say, well, I, I'm not really sure. Is that is that quite the right interpretation of, of Adams? And let me go to his letters. So, for example, in, in this book, as you might know, at the end of it, I recommend, you know, where to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you think I'm wrong? And uh, and you can go read those Adams letters that I used, which I find think uh, you know frankly think bear me out. But every historian in every historical book encounters that interpretive dilemma. Well, I think that's a very good point that that it's not a bright line between fiction and nonfiction that one's objective and the other is speculative. That there there is a lot of interpretation and argument in any nonfiction writing. And and you make a good point also that you, you do cite 
sources, or at least suggest references, places to go to read these things uh, that you've based your, your work on. And uh, again, comparing this book with, with one like Killer Angels, both of them are based on uh, published sources that people can go and read, and if you have read them, the book becomes more convincing. Uh, the the character of, of Henry Adams here is not uh, is not betrayed by anyone who's read the Education of Henry Adams. It, it, have, if you've read that, your Henry Adams sounds like yeah, that could be him. Uh, it, it's not obviously false, and so you gain confidence. The question I guess I have, and this now we're not talking about your book, but maybe others. It's not maybe fair to ask you, but. Uh, there are other authors who write historical fiction, and it's just uh, it's just fiction happened to be set in a pre uh, in, a, in a previous era. I guess the the example I use with students is the Titanic movie, uh, where the kids act like 1990s teenagers uh, set on the deck of a, a ship in the early 20th century. Uh, there, there's no authenticity to their behavior. How? Yeah, how, and and I. I completely agree with you, and it just makes me crazy. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, you know, there's there is a lot of historical fiction where it's essentially, you know, you, you put, put today's modern people back in historical dress, and you you exactly. put coats on them, and you you know you put on wigs, and and it's silly, and it's um, I guess as to me as a historian, I don't you know I don't have much truck with that because I don't find it very interesting. I like to read history because. I like to know how things really were different and how people thought about things differently. So, for example, you know, sex scenes or um, scenes of comradeship or, you know, the political scenes. People just mm-hmm. acted and thought differently there at those times. By the way, a lovely, lovely book that just came out is, I highly recommend, is Stephen Harrigan's um, A Friend of Mr. Lincoln, which, frankly, I think is one of the best things I've re- ever read on Lincoln. And I have read a lot of nonfiction on Lincoln, which is fabulous and, and very good. But um, I just felt like it, it got to the kernel of his soul and his character in ways, as you just said, that are consistent with all the nonfiction that I've read. But I, I have to grant you this, Jerry. I do grant mm-hmm. you that here's the seductive part and the possibly misleading part, which is that fiction is different in that when you're writing it and you're, right, you're in that character's head, then you only see things from their perspective. You can't mm-hmm. say, well, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, and, you know, some, some sources believe, and another source thinks something different. It's not that. It's, it's their view of life. And so, you know, whether it's Alexander Hamilton or Charles Francis Adams or Henry Adams, you are in his head. And so, but, and so in that sense, there's not an attempt to be fair that, you know, a Southerner might have viewed the situation differently. But I do think that most readers are savvy enough to know that, you know, that you're, you're seeing it through their eyes. It's not expected to be, you know, presented, you know, in 12 different ways. So that's the seductive part. But I also think that that's what enables us as readers to really feel present with these characters that we've spent so much of our lives with. I mean, haven't you, Jerry? I mean, think of all the Civil War stuff you've read. Wouldn't you like for just a moment to walk in Lincoln's shoes or Jeff Davis's or, you know, know, Robert E. Lee's? Sure, just to to be able to talk to someone for for half an hour and and 
see if all, about all this speculation to ask them the questions that historians have argued over uh, to get get it from from the horse's mouth would be a wonderful opportunity and and that's a seductive opportunity that the historical novelist has they can imagine until we do that there, Stephen Oates did that uh, you know near the end of his career writing about John uh, John Brown and others where he began writing dialogue into his otherwise theoretically nonfiction history uh, without sources just saying this is what I'm sure they must have said uh, based on a lifetime steeped in the sources and he may not have been far off, but it, it really raised people's concerns that now, once we take the, the limits off, you don't have to have a, a footnote for a quotation. You can make up the dialogue. Uh, how far do you go? A responsible historian such as yourself will, will present something that, that rings true, that fits with what we do know. But the next one could go a little further. Maybe Charles Francis Adams had a vampire in his office. And, <laughs> well, apparently uh, Lincoln did. We've now heard uh, that. As right? we now know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we know that. Well, see, I think this is where if you, if you do write in different genres, then you have a you know, sacred practically responsibility to make sure that when you're in the genre that you're in, that you follow its rules scrupulously. So, I mean, it's, it's always hard. You know, we're always trying to do our best to get it as, as good as we can. But for me, if I'm writing within history, then I, I really, you know, have, you can't make it up. And I, I personally would never do that. I, I don't go, you know, I would not, you know, I don't think it's valid to make up dialogue. I mean, you can, in a sense, as a writer, if there was a dialogue that we actually do know that is recorded, then you can, you can, you know, set it up on a way on a page where one person responds to the other line by line, you know, inter, interwoven. I mean, there's ways as a writer to make it feel more, you know, lively. But making up lines, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good thing. Not in history, because yeah, for the reason why you said, the reader wants to know, okay, uh, you know, I want to know what did happen if I'm reading nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, if it says fiction on the spine, I, you know, then I think we can have a vampire or two. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Firstly, I'm not for vampires, not in something like this, because I do like to get it as close as we can. Um, for example, I was, you know, my newest book, I was trying to figure out, you know, at what point, what, uh, I wanted to write a scene about, um, Aaron Burr, and uh, the fact that Aaron Burr um, knew that he'd been elected vice president, not president, and then sat in the House of Representatives and, you know, never said boo when, you know, the Federalists considered, you know, taking Jefferson down as president and putting Burr in instead. And so Alexander Hamilton, I know, raised things without this. And so I dug and dug and dug in his papers. I found a, a... an actual scene Hamilton actually did raise a toast at the Tontine Coffee House in New York City, you know, around the same time, and then I was able to weave it in. So I like to get as close to what we do know and to be as factual as possible. But if it says fiction on the spine, that gives us a little wiggle room. Did you approach the research for Broken Promises as you would uh, just a, a monograph on foreign relations? Very much so. And in fact, I came to this story because I taught this subject so much. You know, I taught the story of 
you know, the American Civil War and the diplomacy of the American Civil War. And there's so many good books on that. Howard Jones's The Blue and the Gray, mm-hmm. although that, that came out after this book. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of really good um, books on it already. But then I actually did some extra research because the year that I wrote Broken Promises, I happened to be on a, a Fulbright in Ireland, and I was teaching at uh, University College Dublin. And so that was fun because I, the book is set to an important extent, unlike most Civil War books, either fiction or nonfiction. It's a lot of it takes place in London, and um, so I would and you know the British Isles, and so I was able to do some additional research there at the um, the Maritime Museum, the Royal Maritime Museum in Greenwich, and um, in the London Times and that sort of thing, and walking around London, actually going to the place, trying to find the building. That, uh, that Charles and Adam and Henry Adams lived in and then sort of looking around and saying, okay, well, what else was in the neighborhood then at the time? So it was very much what I would normally do and I relied upon much of the same sources and I'd already taught the subject before. But with historical fiction, you feel like you also have to go a bit beyond because mm-hmm. you have to create an atmosphere. And and nothing will undercut that more than if you have buildings in the wrong place and somebody who lives there says, uh, you know, if you got that wrong, what else is wrong? Uh, it, oh, yeah. you, it seems like you have a, an even more fragile bond of trust with the reader in historical fiction because you're not relying on, on the footnotes. Um, let me ask a historical question. I gave this book, uh, I shared it with Emily, my wife, who normally reads fiction and, and teaches literature, uh, K-12 level, and said, uh, you know, read this. Tell me what it. Tell me how it is as a novel. Uh, but her first question was, how did they communicate? Uh, how did Charles Francis Adams communicate with Seward and Lincoln? Was the transcontinental telegraph operating, or not transcontinental? Uh, uh, the were they right? Were they able to to communicate? Uh, instantaneously, or was everything relying on shipboard communication through most of the war? Uh, no, the transatlantic cable wasn't wasn't laid yet. Uh, in fact, one of the visitors to the Adams household in London was uh, the fellow whose name I'm now like forgetting offhand. It seems like it was Cyrus, somebody. Else. One of your listeners will know. They'll text us immediately or email you. Mm-hmm. Um, there was work at that time that was ongoing, at, you know, to try to figure out how to lay the transatlantic. Uh, cable for telegraph. So the way it would work, and again, this is the kind of thing you you know you're like meticulously researching, uh, is that they would send a telegraph that you know would get to a ship, and then the ships would take it over, and then you could telegraph from Southampton to London or something like that. So you had telegraph capability on land, of course, during the Civil War, mm-hmm. but not across the ocean. So there still was that important delay. Uh, and that um, that you know played a role in some of the you know crises um, of the American Civil War, where they were sure. you know they were trying to get stuff back and forth and fast enough, and um, you know that was uh, that particularly occurred during the Trent Affair. When we're trying the, to keep up with events. Absolutely, we're going to take another yeah. short break. We'll come right back, talk some more about. Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War, with author Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman, author of a novel of the Civil War, Broken Promises, originally published as In the Lion's Den. Uh, Lisa, during the break, I took a quick moment on the Google to find that uh, the the transatlantic cable was briefly in operation during the, the Buchanan administration and then uh, went dead, stopped working, and so, so they didn't have it, as you suggest. They were communicating by ship during the time that Charles Francis Adams is in London, uh, and then eventually they get it working or get a new one going uh, by the end of the war. So... Uh, so, so the delay in communication certainly affects things. I want to ask a, a question about uh, the cover of the book, at least the, the cover of the edition I'm looking at, and, and how much in, input you have into that. Covers are important with fiction, obviously, especially if, if you're being getting your book into airport uh, uh, bookstores or, or Target, which is a wonderful thing. On the cover for readers who haven't got a copy of this yet, you've got uh, a young woman, uh, presumably uh, Julia, the, the heroine of the story. Uh, the the What she's wearing is a green, I don't know what you name the garment, upper half of a garment that tells us this is a historical fiction, bodice ripper genre because it's fairly low cut. But underneath it, she's got a lacy shirt that goes all the way up to her chin, so there's no skin whatsoever. So it's like, historical fiction, come look at me, and then, but you're going to learn about the Laird Rams when you read this. Uh, You're going to learn some some serious history here. Uh, It's not a naughty book, uh, in other words. Uh, Did you have any input into that cover? Because I think it really does express the contents quite well. Well, thank you. Um, you know, this particular book had a kind of a, an unusual history. Most of my works, I have three, three books with Harvard 
one coming out soon, um, Yale, et cetera. So, uh, but this book was really different because I wrote it as, you know, as historical fiction and had no experience with fiction and initially had a tough time getting it published. You know, once you get known as a certain kind of writer, people don't want to really give you a chance of doing something different. And so I mm-hmm. initially self-published it, and that's why it was came out initially under the title of um, In the Lion's Den, mm-hmm. and for which it won uh, director's mention for the Langham Prize in American Historical Fiction, as well as the San Diego Book Award for Historical Fiction. But then, you know, like Cinderella at the Ball or something, uh, Random House, uh, picked up the book and wanted to publish it. And they were the ones who came up with this particular um, cover, which is a little, you know, looks a little more romancy, so to speak, than my mm-hmm. original cover, which, you know, was more, I think, nautically themed or something. Uh, so that's one of those things where you just, uh, different publishers handle these things differently. Um, you know, I'm now working with Arcade on my next novel, and you know, they're different yet. It's it's tough because something like the Civil War is, you know, I think can be treated in, in a romance. I mean, that there's, a, let's put it this way, I don't think of this as a romance book, but there mm-hmm. is a romance in it. Uh, so it's not Gone with the Wind, which is primarily romance, uh, although obviously the most well-read book on the Civil War ever written was probably mm-hmm. Gone with the Wind. But... Uh, but this is different in the sense that so much of the focus is on real characters and who are dealing with truly earth-shaking, earth-shattering uh, decisions and problems. And one of the things that so motivated me to write this book was just thinking about, my gosh, what would it have been like if your dad you know, was John Quincy Adams and your grandpa was John Adams and together they had created this country that you were the heir to, and now it was your job to keep the arch enemy from coming in and doing what they've been unable to do in the War of 1812 or in the American Revolution, and finally, ha, 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 you know, give you your comeuppance. And so I just, one of the, you know, one of the big characters in the novel is a person who must have existed, well, this particular man didn't, I, you know, created him, mm-hmm. but who himself had had grandparents and parents who had lost, and uh, and who now is, you know, enjoying his revenge cold, um, and, uh, and and sort of seeing what unfolds. So, so that idea that there were people who were the children and grandchildren of the revolutionary generation, and, you know, who, you know, were, of course, especially for the British, who thought putting down a war of independence, a southern war of independence, was a pretty rich thing for the United <laughs> States to be doing. So I just thought, you know, it would be so interesting to enter into the minds and hearts of people who were in that position, and especially someone like Adams, who, gosh, just had the world on his shoulders. It, it's, when put that way as a human story, it makes sense. I'm picturing, uh, you, you say you've self-published this originally, but otherwise picturing you at a, a pitch meeting talking to uh, a publisher saying, well, this is about how Britain attempts to evade the neutrality acts by producing the Laird Rams and American diplomatic efforts to persuade uh, the government not to release the ships where they might be refitted as warships. Uh, and they're, they're just like, they're falling out of their chairs asleep. You know, what is, right, how could this right. possibly be entertaining? Yet I'm reading this. I know how the Laird, Laird Rams story is going to end. 
Uh, and, and I would guess most of the listeners who, who get this book also know how that story ends. But uh, there, there might be like like my wife uh, who read it who doesn't know how the story ends until she gets to the end of your book. But even though I know how it ends, I'm still turning the pages like, oh, you know, wow, what's going to happen next? Uh, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, that that's you know good historical writing, whether historical fiction or history, can do that. Right. So, it's, but but it's a, it's a complex story uh, to turn into turn into a a novel. Well, that's the oddity in a way, which is that it's funny. I, someone was we were talking about Hamilton and the you know the big Hamilton musical, and someone was saying, ah, you know, I want to see the musical, but I don't have I can't get tickets, so I'm going to read Chernow's book, which is a fabulous book, at a thousand pages. And the person's like, oh, I don't think I'm necessarily going to read that in a weekend. So one of the interesting things about fiction, I think, is that it's much more economical, that you can deal with something as complex as the layered rams. And it's amazing, sort of like in film, we, we feel like we've experienced something big and grand, and yet we've been sitting in the theater for, you know, 90 minutes. So that's the, that's the beauty, in a way, of fiction sometimes, is that you can, you can slice through very complex issues and help people get them quickly in a way where if you're writing nonfiction, it's just, it's just a more plotting experience. I don't exactly know how or why, but I write both, so I know what that's mm-hmm. like. And uh, there's much more explanation required in nonfiction to communicate the same points. With the, but the key there, again, is maintaining the, the, Reader's trust. You mentioned, for example, the when the consul, British consul in New York City, uh, gets involved in the story. You took the time to research, find out who that person was. And uh, a couple months ago on the show, we had Christopher Dickey, who's written a book about the British consul in Charleston during the war, which is right. actually based on that person's papers. And it's a nonfiction that reads like a novel. Uh, mm. the, the characters do all these outrageous things, and you're really and and because it's an obscure story, you don't know how it ends. What happens to the British consul in Charleston? Uh, most people, right. you know, don't know. Uh, so wh- what I'm getting at is, if you pick the wrong name for the British consul in New York City, or you have him say casually mentioned, "Oh, I was talking to Joe Smith in Charleston." But your readers have just read Dickie's book, and they know, oh, the, the Robert Bunch was the consul in Charleston. She's got the name wrong. And then the whole thing collapses like a house of cards. Well, she got that wrong. Maybe you're wrong yeah. about what Adams thinks. It, it seems to put mm-hmm. a lot of responsibility on you. Well, it does. And as you said, it's a, more fra- it's a more fragile bond in fiction. And I cannot claim and will not claim that everything I say is exactly right, because you are guessing. I mean, it is fiction. We are entering into these people's, you know, mental world. And, and we can't even do that with each other, right, Jerry? I can't, I can't know what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. And yet here I'm claiming to know what Charles Francis Adams is thinking, or Henry Adams, these very famous characters in American history. So... You just uh, you you do as well as you can, and um, and you hope that the audience trusts you. you know, I mean, some of it you do make up, you just freely make up, um, and so I, you know, I I do think I actually have the correct name of the maid in the Adams's household in London, <laughs> but it might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I I think that you just have to hope that the reader goes, okay, I can I can deal with a little bit of make up. Because it allows me to do something different. And I actually have used this book once or twice in classes. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I tell you, the reason from a pedagogical point of view is simply that people otherwise, they just, history's dead. And, yes. and what the job of a really good historian to, is to do is to make the dead stand up and walk. And you can't do that by, um, by already knowing the end of the story. And so it's this, it's this curious thing. But as you said, it is weird. It is sort of like, you know, you did know, and I'm sure you know exactly what happens with the layered rams. And yet the goal is to write it away where it's like, wow, how's that going to, how's that going to turn out? And I think fiction gives us that, you know, that little bit of grace. What, moving into the, the historical actual implications of your story, and we just have a, a few minutes left, um, what do you think would have happened had those rams been, and, and spoiler alert for listeners who really don't know what happens to them and you want to get the book, <laughs> don't, don't listen to the last five minutes here. Um, okay, suppose uh, the rams are released and join the Florida and the Shenandoah and all the other uh, raiders on the high seas. Would what happens next? Well, I think Adams was right. They'll grind us all to rags in America. You know, that's the thing. And that's the thing that Americans don't often get, which is that we live in this bigger world. And that bigger world affects us. You know, we can't just uh, pretend like, you know, we're, we're all powerful. Like we're, we're the only ones on the planet. And if the world's largest, you know, military and certainly naval power had decided to really side with the South, you know, you and I would be sitting in two different countries. Well, wait a minute, I'm in Texas, so I guess I'd be the same one as you right now. But uh, a lot of the time I spent in California. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I think that that would have had profound consequences throughout the rest of 19th and 20th century history and into the 21st. So it's just, that's why it's just so momentous. It's so fun to, to, to be in that moment where people still don't know because the consequences would have been quite enormous. Well, and that is really one of the the challenges, say, of recreating the contingency of, of history, of, of making students or readers aware what it felt like to be in the moment, uh, as much as we can recreate that, uh, where you don't know what's going to happen next. So we don't know what's going to happen in November 2016 uh, in the next presidential election, but someone downloading this show a year from now will say, well, it was obvious. We could all see what was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I know. No, we're sitting here right now saying, no, we don't know. We're on the uh, edges of our seats wondering. We're all wondering, but we have to wait to find out. Uh, it only looks obvious in retrospect, and that's true. So your next project is Alexander Hamilton. Uh, when when do you expect that to be uh, be out there? That is coming out September 6th this year, and it's called The Hamilton Affair. And you know, one thing people often don't know about Alexander Hamilton is that he actually happens to be the sexiest man in the American Revolution. Now, before you go crazy there thinking, wait a minute, how much of this is she's making it up? I mean, it, 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 this is actually just, like, true. <laughs> That's so funny. These are all things I didn't know myself until I started researching it. Researching it. I'm like, holy cow, how did I miss that? And it's partly because we don't talk about you know, in our history books, you know, we're plodding through the, you know, sort of got to talk about the Bank of the United States. And, oh, yeah, we got to talk about Aaron Burr. But there are so many twists and turns in this tale that it's just, it's quite remarkable. But the other thing about this is that I really came to appreciate uh, Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton. So the book is really in the way of broken promises. It's about two major characters, 
in this case, Alexander Hamilton and Elizabeth Schuyler Hamilton, Eliza, who was his wife, and I think was the most remarkable founding mother uh, of the American Revolution as well. I'm, you know, I'm putting her up there with certainly uh, Martha Washington, but Martha Washington more for her support of her husband than anything else, although she was quite remarkable. Abigail Adams, we all know about, but mm-hmm. Elizabeth Schuyler is one of those people who, you know, we could put out, we could keep Hamilton on one side of the bill, and if people really want to put a woman on the other side of the ten dollar bill, I'm mm. I'm voting for Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, who founded uh, America, uh, New York's first private orphanage, after her children were orphaned by Aaron Burr, the sitting vice president of the United States. Well, that sounds like a. a- an intriguing uh, premise and, and a book many listeners will want to get. Uh, in the meantime, they can read right now, Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War. If you want to read about uh, American diplomacy in a way that will uh, stay with you through uh, vivid characters, this is the way to do it. The author is Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio tonight. Oh, thank you, Jerry. And I think all the right people are here tonight. I did hear how you said there's just a few hundred, but all of us who are listening now are having a good time, and I, I especially thank you. Well, thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.